Henry. Lovely to see you again. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Well, here we are at the tail end of summer 2021. Needless to say, it's been a bit of a crazy year, but uh, I take it that you've been keeping well and uh, everything's just been puttering along. Yeah, I think I've only had to self-isolate once in this uh, like last few months, so that's like uh, out there on my bonus uh, bonus card. But it's been it's been good. I feel things are getting back to normal and uh, nice to talk to people about the book. And yeah, despite the lack of kind of vitamin D in the air, it's um, been all right, actually. Who in the audience considers themselves an animal lover? If you could raise your hand. Me? And are you all, generally speaking... The rest of you can leave. Me- <laughs> uh, this is not for you. No. Are you all generally meat-free? One of them. One of them. Okay, okay. So somebody seems to walk their talk, at least. Um, because I would consider myself an animal lover, but I still consume meat, and I, I still haven't been able to kick that even since our last discussion. So you've got your work cut out for you there. There's a majority there that you might be able to swing. But then again, you didn't write this book to convince people to go vegan necessarily. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope the book is not just, I mean, you know, obviously it's like a real talking point whether you eat meat or not. And I think it goes to so many like cultural, you know, psychological um, and you know, arguably genetic um, questions. But I mean, the book is slightly born out, not of that, but more out of parenthood and having young kids and sort of seeing the world through their eyes and seeing what we're surrounding them with, which in, in my case, I think in lots of people's cases, is like lots of animal cartoons, animal storybooks, uh, animal teddies, and kind of thinking, oh, hold on, like, is this a moment? Okay, A, I'm knackered because I'm a new parent, but also, like, is this a moment for reflection about thinking about whether my life aligns with the values that I have? And also, you know, obviously, what world my, my kids will have? And you know, just before I came out here today, actually, I was having a chat with my um, my older daughter, and I just said, you know, there aren't as many lions in the world now as there were when I was a kid, and sort of that kind of discussion, which she's now old enough to have, and and so it, it kind of has all of these questions. But I felt certainly that the what I was surrounding my kids with was this vision that we cared about animals, that they had a very high status in in our society, and that they should love these animals. And yet I knew the reality was something different in terms of factory farming, extinction, and just a kind of expansion of our own society to the extent of others. So I kind of went through this journey about, well, what could be an ethic that you could pass on to your kids? What could be a way of thinking about other animals um, that that would actually add up into a coherent ethic? Because I think as we'll come on to, there are some things which we, you know, we perhaps do, in some instances in which we perhaps do too much for animals, you know, like, if you think about some of the things that people do for their dogs and cats, it's, it's incredible. And there are other instances in which we are neglectful and the rules aren't in place and we sort of sweep it to the back of our mind and just hope it will be okay. And I remember when I was a kid, I remember thinking about elephants. Well, look, they can't really be in trouble because someone would have sorted it out, like one of the grown-ups would have sorted it out. And I feel like we're really getting to a point with like climate change and extinction where uh, it would be nice if someone sorted it out. You talked about there doing too much for animals, and uh, I wasn't going to dive straight into current affairs this early on, but um, I wonder what your thoughts were about the evacuation of 100 dogs from Afghanistan. Hem Farthing, who is, you know, some of you may know, the former Royal Marine who set out the Nauzad Animal Shelter and managed to get those animals out. This had a sort of a, a varied response from people, some of whom thought that he was doing something fundamentally heroic and consistent with the values that we hold dear, in, in addition to the humanitarian rescue that's going on, but others who thought that this was, you know, directly in opposition to the humanitarian devastation that we're seeing at the moment. I think tiptoeing around this issue, like most issues I'm really keen to like dive into uh, because it's obvious uh, what my, to me, what my view is after like two, three years uh, thinking about this. But, but I found this one tricky. Now, partly you don't know the people involved. So I don't know who 
Penny Farthing is. I don't know what he's like. And it, there is a history of people um, helping animals and not being great with other people, you know, in places like Africa where, you know, it's often white people going in, local, you know, they treat, treat the animals very well, but not the local people. So, you know, there, there, is, a, um, there is a history there. But from what I've seen, um, you ha- so the question that's been put down is, are you putting animal lives over human lives? And I think even like pretty strong, you know, animal philosophers like Peter Singer, I mean, well, Peter Singer is, a, who is not actually a believer in animal rights, but has written the, you know, perhaps the most influential book on, um, on animal interests called Animal Legal, Liberation. Animal Liberation. Yeah, yeah, and I think you, you meet so many people in this field who've been influenced by that book. But what he's not arguing in that book is that an animal life is worth as much as a, a human life. He's just, he's just saying we should try and judge it on the same scale and we shouldn't discriminate against animals just because they're not from our, um, our species. That we should, and that leads to some quite controversial um, views around, you know, in cases in which, uh, in some cases where you know, he believes that an animal might have more moral worth than a human, for example, if a human is incapable of, um, of consciousness or feeling or is in a coma or that, that kind of condition. Um, but I, I think fundamentally, we, I think a lot of us would um, would have the view that one animal life is not worth as much as one human life. And like, I'm not, I, I don't think I'm different from that. Um, but I, I don't, I, from what I've read, I don't see really that there was a trade-off. I think, you know, it was possible to get these animals out and get the humans that the British government was able to get out. Um, and the, what it required was a bit of organization, but there wasn't this direct trade-off. But I think what I would also say to people who think, oh, it's extraordinary that anyone could ever put an animal in, ahead of a human, is that like implicitly, we all do that all the time. I mean, how much do you spend on your pet versus how much do you spend on anti-malaria charities? I mean, like most, most households in the UK have a pet, and they, I'm almost certain, spend more on that pet than they do on life-saving treatment for children around the world so implicitly we do have this idea of some animals are, are close to us now i think i think the the dogs in afghanistan is interesting because those those weren't our pets they were someone else's rescue dogs and the question is well it almost becomes like these are innocent dogs in a cruel world and they must be protected and it's almost like for some of their supporters that the dogs are worth more than the humans and the Afghans who may have been coming out were, were somewhat, I've done some sin or might have been bad or might be to blame for their own predicament. And that I find really difficult to get yeah, on board with. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally, in Penn Farthing's case, I don't think there was a trade-off. In our last conversation, you mentioned that, you know, loving animals better starts with treating them better and that treating them better shouldn't derive from what we find interesting or cute or uh, in any way like us, but rather just simply the fact that we share the same planet as them, right? We seem to be learning more and more about the beauty and complexity of animals and all sorts of things that reveal how sentient they are effectively, but we still can't bring ourselves to treat them with respect. What do you think it's going to take? Or am I being too pessimistic? Do you see the situation getting better as time goes on? Or do you think that we're kind of stuck in our habits of perceiving them and consuming them and treating them? I mean, where it's getting better is that the standards on farms are are certainly better than they were 50 years ago. In the UK and now around Europe, you're phasing out some of the crates that pigs were kept in, which are still very, very common. And for most pigs in the US, you're kept, they're kept in a crate for most of their lives where they can't turn around. And, and that kind of confinement system, and in the US, they're you know, kept over uh, swimming pools of their own excrement. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, that's horrific. You know, these pigs are 
on some levels as intelligent as dogs, they would want to take their own decisions and they're being kept in, it's called a crate, but I mean, it's like metal bars down, down both sides and along the front. I mean, that's, that's not great. And mm. these are animals who, um, who would like to root around in the mud, who might be curious, who would like to go in and out of woodland, just being kept in a completely different environment. You know, in China, you're seeing the, the growth of, of sort of multi-floor uh, pig farms, so you know, pigs on top of pigs on top of pigs, and they're, they're sort of biosecure, so you won't have the problems, but they're far worse than anything we have in this country. So I think, you know, in this country, the conditions on an individual farm are better than they were 50 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago, and they will get better. The problem is just the quantity of humans eating meat means that the quantity of animals being swept up into that system is mm. far greater. And for wild animals, I think the, the position with deforestation and loss of wild spaces is, is really serious with climate change. So I think our compassion has had results and it will continue to have results. And I think it's worth putting the effort in. And I believe that there will be tipping points, you know, like we're already seeing with oat milk and like Impossible Burgers, Beyond Burgers, like I think the start of a technology, which would be the start of products that will really change how we treat animals mm. but but then you'll still have a lot a lot of other problems around like i mean deforestation is going to be very difficult to tackle you know like the answer to your question is like you have to hope that um you can make things better and the evidence is that you know on individual issues you make things better and you you know activism has results and there is a, a willing audience of people and politicians do not stand up and say we want to hunt foxes we want to not care about animals. You know, I was reading about in Canada, the Conservative Party has, has gone up and said, you know, we're against puppy mills, we want restrictions on animal testing, etc. But yeah, you also can't be so optimistic that you think that everything is going to be solved within a few years, because then you'll get to a solution mm -hmm. where that doesn't happen. I mean, like, vegetarianism is roughly where it was 200 years ago. I mean, the hope is that over the last five years, there might have been an uptick. But we're starting from a very low base. And um, it is a hope rather than an expectation that keeps you keeps you working. Well, let's go back to that word just for a moment, respect. And respect is a sort of prerequisite for love. I mean, is this what you mean really when you say loving animals? Is it just a, a more of a fundamental respect? Or do you think that there is something that we can attain that goes beyond respect and, and actually kind of touches on some of the precepts of love? I mean, a book called How to Respect Animals in a Human-Shaped World doesn't quite have as compelling and emotive a, a, you know, a sound to it. It might not have the double entendre that this one has, but, you know, That's yeah, right. it, might, it might be better. The book is called How to Love Animals because people describe themselves as animal lovers. You know, people often say, like, unprompted or prompted, I love animals, you know. And sometimes it would just be that general, I love animals. Um, and other times it would be, I love dogs, I love cats, um, Beyonce loves whales. Uh, and, you know, like all these things, you know, but even Tucker Carlson, when he had a you know, Fox News host, when he had a vegan activist on his program said, you know, I love animals. And I think loads of things we do with animals are wrong. So I think I, I, what I wanted to play with was that verbal tick and the idea that we define ourselves as animal lovers. Mm. Yeah, it's obviously a very different type of love for the love we have for humans, because I think sometimes it is really just a self-interested relationship of I love leopards is I find leopards beautiful. It's not that, you know, I've struck up a, a relationship with that leopard and it's a two-way thing which although is, that can happen as as this week's news shows jack you alerted me to this amazing story in belgium of antwerp zoo a belgian woman was banned from a zoo in antwerp in belgium for just as you described striking up a relationship albeit at a distance with a gorilla no it was a chimp sorry but the chimp similarly was ostracized from its social hierarchy because it was spending too much time looking at a human so it kind of cuts both ways really the the, the, the woman was ejected from the zoo 
And I, I suppose the chimp is now going cap in hand to his troop and saying, um, I, I was besotted, etc. There are moments, aren't there, where real love for animals can kind of shine through. You're a cat owner. I'm a cat owner. We both love our pets. What is it that you feel when you are around your pet that distinguishes it or makes it more of an individual than just one of a species? Because that's, that's kind of what you allude to in the book is that it's about treating them as individuals. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think what I really mean is, and I've got an Iris Murdoch uh, quote in the book, but it's about, you know, starting to understand that there is an individual there with wants and desires and an ability and probably a desire to make their own choices. And so you're not just seeing the leopard and think those are beautiful colors. You're thinking, all oh, right, the leopard is, is observing me in this way. And mm. the leopard might like these things to be going on around it. Now, whether I can provide those things, like the leopard might want to eat my daughter, probably can't make that happen. But like the leopard would like not to be shot or the leopard would like me not to cut down her um, forest. Maybe I can make that happen. Likewise with my cat. Um, I love my cat more than other cats because this is the cat simply that fate has given me and that I allowed to come into my house. And when another cat appears at the window, I realize this would be stressful for my cat and I shoot that cat away. But I, you know, I also love other cats and I also mm-hmm. you know, enjoy playing with dogs and these kind of things. But I think it, I think it stems from an appreciation that that's a sentient being and you want the best for that. You can't always make life perfect for other creatures. Mm-hmm. Nearly always you can't. But you can, you can think, well, look, can I, can I step around this ladybird? Can I you know, stroke this cat? Can I you know, allow my cat to lie on my laptop while I work? Probably mm-hmm. for 10 minutes. You know, like those kind of things. And those small sacrifices. And I think that, that gives me an enormous amount of pleasure. And so it, it's slightly self-interested. But I also I, I like to think that I'm trying to see the world through my cat's eyes. I, I think I started to really love animals more when I appreciated for the first time my own mortality, which I can't give a date as to when that happened. But when I really started to to understand the fact that I will one day be gone, I became much more empathetic of all living things and have since been stepping around ladybirds, etc. And genuinely sort of trying not to take away uh, life um, and, and treating it with with more reverence. But... I knew we were going to end up talking about cats. I know I brought it up. I mean, I was actually going to call this event Henry Mance Talks to a Crazy Cat Person. (laughs) And the fact fact that this is being live streamed on YouTube, it probably is the perfect platform for an event like that. Let's talk about something a little less cute. In order to write the book, you shadowed workers at uh, an abattoir. I think it was on Forge Farm, right? That was the... That's right, yeah. Um... And I recently read somewhere about not just the, the huge labor shortage at abattoirs across the country and throughout Europe, but also the toll that it takes on the people who actually work there. You know, there have been people who work at abattoirs that are submitted to psychiatric wards. I think one worker uh, was written about as being submitted to a psychiatric ward for, for having repeated nightmares, vivid nightmares of, of the chickens wanting to kill him. I mean, I think it, it's often understated what a psychological toll that sort of work can take. And that actually there is something in us that doesn't want to kill, even if we are habituated to it through work. But it's so easy to get a job at an abattoir, isn't it? I mean, you practically got one on arrival, didn't you? They didn't even ask your second name. That's right. Yeah, I, um, I decided it, would, it, it was like, I decided it was important for the book to, to start at the bottom. You know, George Orwell has a line in, um, in um, Down and Out in Paris and London, Paris, Paris, London, um, where he becomes penniless on the street. And he said, you know, all your life you, you feared going to the dogs and here you are and it's kind of and I felt like and you know in, in his well in his moment it's kind of a like this reassuring thing that he can't go any lower but I felt it was sort of 
it was important to go to the almost the lowest part of our relationship with animals so mm. that I could then build back from there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I worked in an abattoir and, yeah, I called up and I, I sort of concocted a cover story and, like, why I'd want to work there and, um, you know, could I get someone to give me a reference and all this stuff and I set up people and, and, like, I didn't need any of that. It was just like, you want to work here? Fine, come down, you know. Uh, and I sort of showed up one day and, you know, at the time of my choosing, I knocked on the door and the guy goes, you know, Look, it's you're going to have to try it, you know. Mm. Um, and so I did go and, and try, it and he just he just shoved me on the production line, and like obviously, like my immediate thought was I don't want my fingers to be chopped off, and so like then it really focuses you. But and I, you know, I think it it obviously taught me things about about animals, um, but I think the you know the, there are just dangers on that production line. So for workers, and you're not really in control of that production line. So mm. you know the animals are coming through you're having to perform some kind of procedure depending on where you are at the line you actually i just i just learned that car factories were initially based on meat production units like this was the original assembly line really? and, and sort of to make cars into an industrial um, mass-produced item they looked at you know how you disassemble a cow and a sheep and said right we just do that in reverse so you know this is like the original the original production line and you're you're doing your job, and you can't really stop the line. I was never told how you might do it, and so um, yeah, it's dangerous. And I, people work on it for hours without a break. Um, in the US, there are reports of people wearing nappies because they can't go to the toilet. It's the lowest level, you know. And so you have, in many cases, voiceless workers here. You know, most I think sixty seventy percent of the workers have been EU uh, nationals. Um, and which is part of the reason there's a labour shortage n- and now. Um, you know what? I, I would have thought that a lot of people on the work on the. I would have thought that nearly everybody worked on that production line and that um, at the abattoir. You know, they weren't vegetarians. It doesn't necessarily shock you. There's a thought process you have to go on through afterwards. Mm. And I, I also think that when you're there, there's a circularity of someone wants to buy lamb or sheep meat and uh, mutton, and someone wants to buy pork. And therefore, someone's got to produce it. And why shouldn't that person be me? And mm. I think there is an honesty in that of like, it's much more honest than the shopper who says, I want to eat pork, but I don't want to know how it's produced. Or actually, you know, what? and what we've had over the last few decades in this country is like people eating less red meat, which is more obviously meat, and more and more chicken breasts, which we know are from chickens, but don't look anything like meat. And they're sort of, you know, as close as you can get almost to tofu in terms of um, how animal-like they look. So that kind mm. of... Did, I, you know, I, I'm much closer to those who really go to, and, and do the job than those who kind of disassociate themselves and say, oh, it's nothing to do with me, the killing. So you evidently didn't go into this abattoir with a pen and pad. You just knew that everything you were going to see would stay with you. Presumably, there wasn't any details you had to... Really... Yeah, I actually I bought a pen and pad on a, a, a pen and paper on the um, on the way back from the avatar to the train station. I remember on the first day. Have you day. kept that pad? I bet it's in a right state. I mean, uh, yeah, I definitely did a sort of fumigation because the smell is something crazy. I was like, going to ask uh, you about that. Can you divulge? I mean, everyone's currently enjoying vegan ice creams or have just or trying to digest them. Yeah, just think of that smell, and then like nothing like that smell mm. is like. Uh, <laughs> but like, no, I mean, it's sort of almost comic, but like sweeping up the bits of animal that were not required and say like the bits that have just fallen out and then you're sort of told right you know take out this um uh this trolley of stuff and throw it in this big bin and that really was like i mean it was like you know the air was thick with 
something and it was like you were sort of crawling through it to throw this in and then there was a moment when I was tipping in this bucket where I thought I might go in and I was like this is not happening to me <laughs> like whatever else happens I'm not going in that bucket I'll lose a finger but I'm not going in there but and it might so, have been the perfect combination of that experience look, there is, sometimes yeah. you've got to, you, there's only so far you can go to journalism <laughs> um, but the, I, I mean I sort of um, I, you know I, I've read stories and I think some people do obviously really struggle with this moment of death some farmers really struggle with that moment of death and saying goodbye to their animals mm. um, and others don't and you know it may be it may be some genetic question that we work out but I just think the premise for it all being okay is that it's necessary and it just isn't necessary we can eat differently and we can you know, even if you want to eat some meat we don't have to eat the quantity of meat we eat today I and mean, I was reading today about Berlin student canteens taking meat off the menu and that, that's like something or you know just fewer options or just having more meat-free days it's all going to reduce the amount of uh, animals we require mm. and I, th I just think there's so many ways of painlessly reducing the, uh, the amount of animals we eat. Let's, let's talk about the issue of dietary changes because uh, and this is actually a question I'm going to pose but half of it I'm going to sort of conceal because if anyone can guess the right answer to this uh, then you will get a free copy signed by Henry Mance of How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. <laughs> and that question really starts like this. Okay, so a kilo of cheese uses about 21 kilos of carbon dioxide, which is equivalent, according to the book, to driving a new car about 100 kilometers. Can anybody get closest to how many tons of cheese they think we eat in the UK per year? Can you guess? No, actually, no. actually, you can't. You don't. You don't count. You can't get a free copy. I don't want to it. sign copy. No, uh, <laughs> I do. <laughs> Higher. 30. Million. I think over a mil. Over a mil. Okay, I think you were closest at uh, at at a million. It's actually just under half a million. It's three hundred thirty thousand. So imagine, imagine three hundred thirty thousand tons of cheese per year. How much? How much in terms of carbon dioxide is that producing? An incredible amount. Well done. Moving on then to going vegan, the experience you described in our last conversation was one of sudden realization that you wanted to cook a meal, but you didn't have anything to cook with. I've been there. Believe it or not, I've tried to go vegan. But, it, but the real challenge was that your wife actually said she'd divorce you if you ever went vegan. Yeah, that hasn't happened. That hasn't like happened. A, like, um, but have like you it. converted her is the question. No, I mean, I do most of the cooking, so um, she, she endures that. But yeah, I would say, I would say it is really like... Um, learning to cook again I mean it's really like um uh if you think I mean if, going vegetarian is is quite easy I found and especially if you do if you like if you warm up for it by just sort of cutting down mm -hmm. um various, uh, various meat but like cheese is a is a is a very good substitute for meat and like you know you can still go out and have very good pizzas and all this yeah stuff. hugely and, unsustainable so I guess you know do you think that the vegetarians may kit themselves if they think well I cut out meat yeah, I mean, I basically, I, you know, I was a vegetarian for a while, but it doesn't really make sense. Like, uh, mm. I mean, like, say you do it on environmental grounds, beef in particular is a very inefficient meat to produce in terms of methane emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, mm. and the land it requires. Well, like, cheese is pretty bad. I mean, cheese is a lot worse than chicken. So that's a problem there. And of course, if you do it on, if you're vegetarian for welfare grounds, well, look, Dairy cows are still cows in, in farms. And they're, you know, actually the separation of a dairy calf from a dairy cow mm. is in many ways worse than something that would happen in a, in a beef herd. And it also has relied on, on really this very intensive breeding, which makes dairy cows into these kind of 
you know, swollen milk bags um, mm. and on, you know, often on unstable legs, I think I quote someone as saying, but, you know, having to put in huge amounts of energy to produce milk, which, you know, g- genetics has given them this ability to produce it for their own offspring. And of course, we're coming in and accepting that. So I think dairy cows, I think it's commonly accepted, may have worse lives than beef cows. Mm. And yet we see them as the clean option because, you know, uh, milk and cheese aren't red in the way that steak is red. Anyway, I think where there are direct substitutes, you look for direct substitutes. So like oat milk in a flat white, slightly putting myself in a in a uh, social box there, but like oat milk in a flat white, I think is it's like fine. You know, or like you'll find another milk that's great for you. But like there is that alternative. Burgers, you have something very close to a beef burger, whether it's Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger, or like a Linda McCartney burger, whatever. I think like that's really close. And anyway, what you're tasting is the ketchup half the time. So yeah, that's fine. But then you do have problems like a pizza. It's hard to find a great vegan pizza, a great vegan cheese. And I think that's where you learn actually to change a bit what you're cooking is. So you, you know, you move towards to more towards Indian cooking, which doesn't use so much dairy. Peanut butter is great. You know, I think it has some of the, um, the flavors that people would otherwise get from, um, cheese or some of the sort of the satisfying mm. nourishment. And then look, last night I made, a beetroot and yogurt soup of Claudia Roden's. Um, and I made it with oat yogurt. And it was nice, even though it, it was a beetroot and yogurt soup. It doesn't sound delicious. Beetroot but it, and yogurt yeah, soup. Like, I mean, I don't even like beetroot, but the soup was nice with uh, um, oat yogurt. And so like, I think it, it really is very possible. And I think the difficulty is that we learn taste very young as children. And that really embeds very strongly. And we are, um, I think if we just gave our kids a more diverse diet and made, I think parents are a little bit too shy about, about saying to their kids or, or about just giving their kids a less meaty diet. They think that kids need loads of protein mm-hmm. when, you know, most kids get more than enough protein. Reinventing your pantry and starting over in terms of a, a new diet is obviously very challenging. You may want to swap notes with our uh, our vegan in the audience here about beetroot and yogurt soups. What other dishes do you make? I'm genuinely interested. So so your, your life hacks as a vegan, the things that you eat to get around certain problems, whether they be of temptation or logistics, and then the things your go-to dishes when you're cooking. Look, temptation ends when you write a book about veganism because then you're like, you're <laughs> boxed in. You're like, you really, um, I really feel like on the straight and narrow now. Um, I think you need a, a variety in mm-hmm. your um, cooking. So I have um, uh, I get a veg box, and that gives you, in theory, seasonal veg, but it sort of inc- it ensures there's some kind of change. And I think regardless of whether you give up meat or not, that's quite a good thing to do. Otherwise, you know, you're going through recipes for asparagus in October and buying asparagus from Peru, which you know has its own environmental cost. But I think like getting mm-hmm. sustainable um, a seasonal veg. Is a, is a really great start, whatever your diet. Yeah, I mean, great, great meals would be like um, a vegan chili, I think, with um, cocoa to give some of the flavor there. I think uh, miso aubergine. You miso know, aubergine, I mean, I very think, nice. You know, for, um, fermented foods are, again, whether you're vegan or not, yes. are, are very fashionable. So I would recommend, uh, yeah, kimchi. Um, is kimchi vegan? Kimchi, yeah, it's just fermented cabbage. Um, Bacteria. This, um, you know, I'm okay with eating muscles because I feel that muscles don't have um, an ability to feel pain. So, now it comes out. Uh, <laughs> uh, when I end up in a seafood restaurant with no other options, that's what I'm going for. One of the other aspects of the book then is is talking about 
how hunting can be justified under certain circumstances, which which is an odd place for the book to land, given given where it seems to be going at the time you're reading it. Well, yeah, let me ask you. I mean, how many how many deer a year do you think are killed in in Scotland by humans? If I get the answer right, do I get the free? <laughs> yeah, no, you, you um, take it off that, that nice gentleman <laughs> over there. We'll, we'll wrestle for it. Um, is it something like? I don't know, 10,000? Uh, yeah, not bad, actually, but it's 120,000. Oh, okay, uh, that was pretty, so, pretty far off. Um, I mean, deer don't have natural predators in, in Scotland or in the rest of the UK because we you know, wipe them out. So it's really left to us to control those numbers. And otherwise, you know, the reason, part of the reason why there are bare hillsides in Scotland it, um, is because there are too many deer and too many... Um, is obviously a subjective judgment about what the ecosystem can handle. And I think what ecologists would say is that the deer crowd out everything below them in the food chain. So they they nibble on uh, bits of the forest, which could otherwise used be, uh, be used for spiders, which mm. might help birds, etc. Um, so I, I think anyone looking at the bare hillsides of, of Scotland would, would say that's not a balanced ecosystem. And so there is a, an ecological reason uh, for for killing deer and actually killing deer is for me quite an easy one because done right it's painless you know mm. done right it's really you know it's a bullet straight through um the heart hopefully and uh now it becomes complex when you say well look what about if an alien species arrived and decided that uh, you know uh, the real you know the most numerous uh, mammal species or uh, one of the most numerous ma- mammal species which is taking up the most resources needs to be culled and that would be us but fine Let, like until that happens let's not worry about that but i think what people who are opposed to trophy hunting which is a sort of the um you know killing lions and tigers and ele- um elephants around the world tigers not so much lions elephants giraffes what they don't get is that if that money doesn't go into local communities in places like namibia then they don't have a reason for keeping that wildlife around. So you either sustain the wildlife population through hunting, you know, killing a small amount of animals, but bringing in a lot of money. And you talk about hundreds of tens, of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars that people are prepared to pay to kill an elephant. Um, that's a lot of money to a community in Africa. And that teaches them we don't need to convert this into a uh, ranching land. or we don't. That, that gives an economic incentive for them not to convert the land into, into farmland of some sort. You know, we, we tend to get very outraged by animals killed by, you know, white hunters who, you know, may be on the right of the political spectrum or whatever. But if the animals aren't killed that way, then they may well be killed by local communities who want to protect themselves and protect their livestock, quite understandably. So, so yeah, I believe that both sort of culling that we have here and the trophy hunting, which gets a very bad press in Africa, can be justified. Hmm. Now, there are clearly examples of animals suffering very slow deaths at the hand of hunters who simply don't care about their well-being and of hunting being done unsustainably. I mean, there are certainly species that should not be hunted. And at a certain type of time of the year, in I think in July, August, the, you know, about half of the um, bird biomass in the UK are released pheasants and partridges mm. that people release to shoot. And obviously that very complex their relationship with the ecosystem but basically you don't need to breed pheasants and partridges in in cages for the good of the ecosystem we do that for entertainment so that rich people can go out and shoot and i don't think that's a defensible form of hunting mm. but but yeah I, I think people need to get over this idea that that we can avert all death in the animal kingdom which we clearly can't i'm going to open up to questions in the audience are there any that come to mind 
because I wanted to ask you in that case, Henry, then, so long as sustainability through veganism in particular, but through other forms of, of sort of cutting down and lowering our footprints and, and the cruelty that we inflict on other species is a lifestyle choice. How hopeful are you that it can ever really sort of take off at the scale needed? Yeah, it's better than there being no choice, which I mean, like in McDonald's, I think McDonald's don't have a plant burger at the moment because they had one and it was horrible and then they took it <laughs> off. And uh, um, McDonald's actually, the CEO described their menu as very Darwinian, which I, I mean, I think it has, probably has some truth that, you know, you have something that doesn't work, you take it off the menu. So anyway, right, so, right. so definitely better to, to be like a Burger King in the US, which has an impossible burger than McDonald's, which has mm-hmm. nothing. Um, in the UK, the Committee on Climate Change says that to meet um, our climate change targets, it, we should reduce the amount of meat we consume by 30% by 2030. Now, like that, so that's the sort of baseline, and that's taken up by the Dimbleby National Food Strategy, which was published a few months ago. And that's like incredible, like 30%. So like one way of visualizing it, which wouldn't be the way it would happen, was that like at the moment you have maybe 3% of the population who are vegetarian. So what if you went to you know, over 30% of the population being vegetarian. I mean, that would just be an extraordinary growth, Mm. like, within a decade. And so, like, if that's the baseline case, that would be extraordinary. That would be, like, um, more than most, you know, vegan advocates could ever ever hope for. So um, the problem is I don't see any strategy for getting us there. Like, even the national food strategy just says, well, that's what we should aim for, and, like, maybe we should invest in alternative proteins. Um, but which people are, are doing. But you do need some nudges along the way. And I think the real missed opportunity is in schools, which at the moment have to provide a certain number of meat and fish uh, meals for, I guess, understandable nutritional reasons. Mm. But like, if you're going to t- tell your kids, by the way, you're going to have to eat differently, the time to tell them that is not when they're 18 and have formed all their eating habits. It's when they're yeah. uh, two and three and they're just getting to know tastes mm, mm. and you, you say, well, look, we, maybe we can eat meat occasionally, but just on pure climate reasons, you can't eat mm. as, as much meat as, as we're, um, we've been uh, accustomed to eat. So I sort of think like rhetorically, a lot of organizations get how drastic um, the change has to be. It hasn't quite followed through and anyone who's propo- proposed the meat tax has been kind of shot down very quickly. So I think a meat tax is probably not the way to go because um, it makes people feel like persecuted. But I think shaping of choice, and we know that our food choices are not really free choices anyway. I mm. mean, like, you buy ultra-processed food and um, you don't necessarily want to do that. I mean, people are happy with introducing uh, taxes that, that sort of change the sugar content of our drinks or lead manufacturers to, to reformulate. So I'm really hopeful that if you lean a bit on schools and other organizations, hospitals, mm-hmm. you know, hospitals are meant to be looking out for our health. You know, it's red meat is, is, it seems to be on balance, you know, eating the amount of red meat we, we is bad for us. So, so yeah, I sort of, I'm hopeful that there can be nudges and changes. And like, what I think is when, when you used to go into, I don't know whether it's still the case, but when you go into an Indian restaurant and there was always like one fish and chips option for your like uncle who could not handle the idea of eating Indian food. <laughs> Uh, if, you're, if you're listening, great. Um, but but I really, I sort of hope we get to somewhere close to that with meat, whereby, look, here are four plant dishes. Mm. And like, if you really can't handle that, here's a fish one or here's a meat one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in many more contexts, that could be the norm. That's what, what hopefully we could strive for. And then people would choose. And like when I, when people come around for dinner, they, I think of their own free will say the the food is okay. You know, and like, it's not that you're going to live a miserable life. 
It's just the default option. You're used to going out and thinking, oh, a meal is about this. But if you go to a restaurant and they say, no, 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 we can do you a great meal which doesn't have plant-based stuff in it, which doesn't have meat in, then I think you, you'll be impressed. Food has such an emotional hold on us. It contains so many memories, doesn't it, of growing up a childhood. We have a question at the back. Sorry, the microphone's coming to you. Hello. I just feel like the um, supermarkets have a lot to answer for because if I decide to like eat less meat, but I still see the supermarket shelves like stacked with meat. And, I'm, and I just think that if, I don't know, if maybe they had like a meat-free Thursday, if Sainsbury's suddenly did that, I just think that would be huge. But I just feel like if I stop eating meat, will Sainsbury stop stocking less? But I just don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, that's a really great... Um, so then you get to this... I, I know people are really... Um, I think there's so many people with good intentions who would love, like, their pound to go further and they would love to change. And, like, I, I, if I'm reading you right, I think change is slightly lumpy. So, yeah, you think, um, oh, well, I'll, I won't buy meat today, but then you see it all reduced and then someone else sweeps it up and says, right, I'm going to eat meat for, you know, three, meal, uh, three meals a day for the next six months. Like, then you get a bit disappointed. But I think... On this, there's like really positive signs that supermarkets are giving over more space to alternative meat, uh, milks and alternative proteins in general. And one of the reasons they do that is because they are having to report their climate change emissions and they are responsible under scope three for the emissions of their suppliers. And so what you know, products they sell in their stores. And so they are looking for opportunities to, to move away from, um, from beef. So I think it may be a bit lumpy, like, like like it would happen with McDonald's that they put a plant burger on the menu and then took it off and then you think well what's the point we're not making any progress but I think generally supermarkets are, are giving over whole fridges um, to to meat free stuff and you know, I go to restaurants and admittedly this is London and the type of restaurants I go to but there are often like three vegan uh, options and I think if you order one of them you're sending a signal to that uh, um, that restaurant that yeah keep this on which I think is so different to where it was five years ago which was where which was like yeah, we can do that. We'll just take out the cheese. And uh, it was like, no, that's not a meal then, is it? Um, anyway. Um, I can also attest, I became a vegetarian in 2001, uh, back when your choices were rubber or dust. So um, <laughs> <laughs> very different time. Um, but sort of slightly more cynical, perhaps, um, is there something to be said for, I understand, you know, the book is how to love animals, not necessarily how to, um, you know, reduce carbon emissions, but is there something to be said for there are bigger wins to be gotten by reducing carbon emissions, water use, you know, cruelty inside the meat making system that we have rather than trying to get 30% of the population to go vegetarian in the next sort of 10 years. Um, you know, I, I'm sure this has been brought up before, but is it like, you know, do we work with the devil or do we fight the devil? Like what is, you know, what is the best course of action here? Excellent question. Yeah, my, it's a really good question and really interesting. And like, basically, I think one of the difficulties that we have, like approaching this, because so my book is trying to say, love wild animals and also love domesticated animals. And I think the problem is that there's a trade-off of the type of farming that we have in Western countries that either you, you go for uh, better welfare methods, free range, you know, grass-fed, um, or you go for lower footprint methods. And it's, to me, it's not clear that you can do both. In fact, it's often very, very obvious that you can't. So like, Chicken is a very efficient meat in terms of um, land use, in terms of carbon uh, emissions. But 
we know that the welfare of chickens is terrible, that they're not meant to be this shape. They're not meant to grow this quickly. They're not meant to, you know, get to, get to a size where their legs break and they have to be picked up the floor. And, you know, their last couple of days, maybe with no oversight and incredible pain and all that sort of grim stuff, which I try to deal with very quickly in the book because people don't want to think about it. But like, so yeah, that's your low carbon meat, but it's your terrible welfare meat. And meanwhile, like grass fed or pasture fed or um, beef, whatever you want to call it, you know, that's, that's great for the cow. And, you know, if I were, a, if I could be any animal, I'd like to be like a really, um, any farmed animal. I think, you know, a nice beef herd somewhere in like East Anglia would be, you know, ideal. But, the, you know, the, the, the carbon associated with them, the land footprint is huge. And also, you're likely to have less meat on each animal. So you're going to need more animals, more methane. And so I think there's a real, you know, we both, I think people love animals in the sense that they, you know, they have an environmental conscience and they also have a welfare conscience. And I just don't see how the meat industry can marry those two. Um, and I think what I would, I mean, I think I would prioritize the welfare improvement um, in the short term and like to get to, because at least there, there's a consciousness, I think, around, right, you know, we're going to produce chicken, but we're going to produce chickens that um, come from, um, well, that are bred, uh, to grow slightly more slowly so their, their um, health outcomes are a little bit better. That sort of raises the level of debate. But then ultimately, we do need to just shrink down the amount we eat. And I think, yeah, I, I think it's not going to come by 30% of the population going vegetarian. But if everybody sort of salami sliced a bit of their, to, to use the wrong, the wrong <laughs> metaphor, but a bit of their consumption. But yeah, I think, in, you know, in other places in the world, there are ways of having better welfare and lower footprint by introducing better breeds, better feeds, etc. But just as it happens, mm. we've come to a point where there's a trade-off. And I don't see I don't see how we how we rectify. So a vegan restaurant that you'd recommend? You know what? Recommend? I don't really I mean, I don't go to huge numbers of vegan restaurants. I go to yeah. like I go to just restaurants and expect them to have a vegan option. And they generally do. <laughs> there's a great falafel place in Soho, Jerusalem, Jerusalem falafel or something, mm, a mm. falafel stall, which I think is great and five pounds and you know, brilliant. Um on one of those streets in Soho, Berwick Street or something. Yeah, I go to restaurants and they they're pretty they're like loads of them are really good about them ensuring there are other options. Excellent. Um, okay. So yeah, I, so there's I no one in particular that you would say, guys, well, you've got let, to go. Uh, um, in my book, I, I talk about Alexis Gautier and his restaurant. He's got a new one which is wanted to be vegan, and I sort of think if you're really um, rich, that would be a good place to go. <laughs> um, and he's like very inventive with flavors and uh, very ambitious that it should taste better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think that that is like a once a year treat um, mm -hmm. uh, rather than a, a, a go regularly thing. Going to the beginning of the book, you talk about reincarnation uh, and how if uh, many of us came back as an animal in the next life, likelihood is we'd come back as a factory farm animal. You mentioned the sort of animal that you would like to be, but of all you know about the way that animals are treated in various settings around the world, what do you think would be the utter worst thing to come back as? These are like... Just to end on a cheery These are note. massive philosophical questions. Yeah, I mean, I sort of... And some of them I dodged deliberately in the book. So like, in some ways, the animal you want to be is a Greenland shark. Who, okay, who might live several centuries. Which is like, you know, nearly four centuries old. And so like, I, on the other hand, I don't really like swimming in uh, the, you know, the ocean for that long. So it probably wouldn't be for me. Um, but like, yeah, what it, it's this question of what, it, what the animal's experiences are. And it is in fact the worst animal to be, you know, one that just dies very quickly. You know, mm -hmm. it because you may, even if you don't feel pain, your life's been very short. So your, your kind of happiness is very short. And in that, I mean, yeah, factory farm chicken, which lives, 
you know, maybe six weeks, which is just a little bit longer than a house fly. Mm. You know, that's not a great, that's not a great life. And I think I would, I think if I were a, a pig kept alive for a series of years, like regularly impregnated, but not allowed to move around, mm. that's got to be an idea of hell, hasn't it? I mean, unfortunately, to be a bit grim. But then, you know, I, I think we just don't know enough about the happiness of some wild animals. You know, like, mm. is, it, is it stressful to be a prey animal in a jungle? This is like a sort of a new frontier of research. We don't really know. I think there are some signs that they're kind of evolution may have given them a few a few cards in their favor. Yes. But like um, deer seem to be less stressed by their natural predators being around than they are by humans being around. So there may yeah. be some sort of um, adjustment that has gone over over time. Yeah, that's right. The natural suffering of animals getting by in an ecosystem versus the, the, the confusion and fear and, and lack of understanding that we put them through when they suffer at our hands, I think is the thing that I find to be most difficult to, to uh, process. Listen, uh, we've ended on a slightly grim note, although... Uh, yeah, let's, let's just say it's, it's great to be humans. Like, like it, is, humans, it, is. it is an amazing species and we are amazing and like, we're very lucky to be in this position. And that's why I think like we should expand our vision of progress so that it takes in other species. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Can't recommend the book highly enough. I said this on the last episode, but I'll say it again. To the lucky person who gets this book, read it. Uh, it may well change your life forever. The thing is, I think it hasn't yet completely sunk in for me. Although last night I dreamt that my cat got run over by a car. And the anger and the sadness followed me into today so that I was sat at my desk feeling actually quite depressed and lachrymose and angry for reasons I couldn't quite understand until I realized it was probably because I was going to have this interview with you talking about how to love animals. And the fact that I think it's starting to work on me, everything that I've read here. So thank you very much, Henry, for writing this book. It's fantastic. And thank you for joining us for the first Booking Club live event. Thank you all. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.